Hello and welcome to this very special Mastication Nation non-denominational winter holiday smackdown episode where we set aside our usual alphabetic amblings and take a moment to share our favorite holiday treats and traditions all while enjoying a warm slice of cheese and tuna pie washed down with a nice glass of Branston pickle. At least that's the tradition around our way. I'm assuming that you do the same, Well, Of course, it's the only way that you can start your Christmas day. Nice warm glass of Branston pickle. <laughs> It's weird that Branson Pickle has not traveled at all outside of England. It's a crime that it even exists. I remember being down uh, in Devon one time with our friends Greg and Nick and making sandwiches. And they would do, you know, is it Piccadilly? Which is a sort of sandwich sandwich spread. And I was like, no, I'm good. No, no, no. You guys can have that. English people and their weird sandwich fillings. I tell you, Piccadilly... Uh, Piccadilly, Pickle, I've you. never, I've never, I've never learned to appreciate. Piccadilly, though, is top drawer. And I tell you, who turned me on to that weirdly is Richard Branson's sister-in-law. I okay. <laughs> she ran <laughs> at Virgin Group headquarters where I used to work. She ran the canteen. We had these wonderful lunches every single day, and she was like the Piccadilly lady. Like she just wanted everybody to have it. Like oh, if it goes really well, Piccadilly. It goes really well, Piccadilly. So. Hmm. I used to be like you, and now I have discovered the ethereal glory of piccalilli, and now I'm a convert. Do you want to explain what piccalilli is? Well, it's a condiment, and it's a very British condiment, despite its name. It's basically an English ver- or British version of the lovely Indian pickles that you get when you get when you order poppadoms. Hmm. And so it's basically chopped pickles and spices, and cauliflower, I think, onions and pickles, and then it's seasoned with mustard and turmeric. I, I quite like it. I think it's nice. It gives a nice tang to a sandwich. Yeah, I can see it as more of a dipping, but not as a sandwich. But no, it's good. It's like a <laughs> ham and cheese sandwich with some piccadilly. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a, one of the 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 greater contributions to our global f- kitchen that the British have made. Well, here's the question: Does it go well with ice cream? Mm, probably not. <laughs> but you never know. Touching upon our last episode last a uh, few weeks ago now uh, on on ice cream, we had some some great feedback both online and offline. Uh, seems that everyone sort of has their what their favorite is, but overall, does everyone loves ice cream? I don't think I spoke to a single person who was like, "Yeah, ice cream's just not my thing." Because that's I don't yeah that's not cool that's not cool at all and even for me somebody who who physically shouldn't be eating ice cream it's still my favorite thing in the world but we had some good feedback online um, Paul reached out to us Paul Papadimitriou he said his golden ratio is chocolate 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 which <laughs> I kind of agree with he's not playing into any Swiss stereotypes is he no <laughs> no not at all I was surprised uh, you know Paul's got a, a man of uh, 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 who appreciates the finer things in life. He's got excellent taste and pretty much everything. And so the simple elegance of chocolate does not surprise me. And of course, you know, Swiss chocolate, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I didn't understand the second part of his, his statement. Um, also, flat wooden sticks should be outlawed. Yuck. What does he What does he mean there by flat wooden sticks? I wonder if it's the the implement that you're sometimes given to eat your ice cream oh, with. Oh, like the little tasting spoons. Oh, yeah, that would I, make sense. I think that's what he meant. Paul, let us know if we're completely missing some sort of weird Swiss tradition about how you're supposed Flat to be. Flat wooden yeah. stick should be out. Or that was just a general, you know, non sequitur comment yeah. that he was feeling at that moment. He, it's like ice cream and also stick. Yeah. I also like the other thing he added, which is this this parenthetical comment about our discussion regarding the yellow vanilla flavor that you sometimes see in Europe. He said, 
Also, I prefer a fake yellow vanilla based on the French style egg yellow than a fake green pistachio based on it was brown, but we added WTF colorants because people don't know better. And he's right, because when you look at a pistachio, yes, the inside of it is green, but when people want it to be like that ultraviolet green, it's that I don't think I'm going to go anywhere near pistachio flavored anything anymore because I'd kind of suppressed that notion. It's like mint chalk chip, you know, ice cream is only white bits of chocolate in it. You don't know it's green. And then you get like the sort of lower end mint ice cream and it's a it's a neon green unknown to to nature. So I think those are the some of the, the I, things that you got to keep away from. Green ice cream in general is something that probably should be avoided. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, I, I, well, things that are green that aren't green in nature. Yeah, yeah. Our brother, when we were asking uh, Andrew Hunter, at Andrew TCO4 on Twitter. Great episode. There's a place called Galupo. Galupo, uh, yeah. Yeah, Galupo that was doing coronation chicken flavored ice cream during the Diamond <laughs> Jubilee, which we tried. It was pretty gross. Uh, yeah, I can understand a curried chicken with sultana, uh, savory dish created for the uh, for the coronation of our current queen. Would uh, not- you know, I have to say, I love coronation chicken. I do. I it's one of my favorite sandwiches in the world. Chicken. When I was at school, they made coronate cold coronation salad chicken sandwiches, and they were incredible. But I yeah. don't see it working in ice cream. Chicken and ice cream, I'm not sure that works. <laughs> I think if you took the flavors of a coronation, because it's already creamy because it's a mayonnaise-based dish, yep. it's got those lovely spices and like you say, the sultanas. I think if you if you can take the chicken bit out of your head mm-hmm. and isolate the spices and flavors that are in coronation chicken, it could translate to ice So cream. basically, turmeric, golden raisins, celery, uh, curry powder, curry powder, curry powder uh, or garam masala, nice that could work actually. That's not, not terrible. Uh, it's all about how they utilize the chicken part of it. So I have to I have to follow <laughs> up with him and see if there was like a, a hunk of chicken right on top of the to, on top of the ice cream. So, but keep your feedback coming on the ice cream. It is I know it's the middle of winter in the northern hemisphere and not the most convenient of time to eat ice cream, but it does seem. But to- I know we have we have listeners in Australia and in South Africa where they are enjoying unbelievably hot summers yes actually it's not it's not they're not enjoying it in south africa where they're experiencing some terrible droughts but maybe they're they're taking their minds off it with some ice cream so if you're <laughs> keep, keep keep let us know what you're uh what you're enjoying in the southern hemisphere although i had ice cream today so and it's minus one jumping into the best thing you had to eat since we last recorded i'll let you kick us off today so i've been to a couple of places but uh i didn't eat anything incredible i've been to luxembourg i've been to newcastle but yesterday in our little tiny village or the shire as our other brother calls it we had our little village christmas fair and there was a hog roast full pig on a spit that our butcher does every single year right outside their shop and they do these pork rolls, so you get a lovely English crusty white roll. They they slice it right off the side of the pig onto your roll with the flesh, the fat, and the crackling. Little dollop of applesauce and some mulled wine, and that makes for a happy Alex. Wonderful. What's funny is that for the first time ever, and totally coincidentally, Alex and I have the same best thing we've eaten since uh, we last recorded. I, I sent you a message yesterday that I was at my local butcher shop in Berkeley. And the concept of pork loin with crackling on it, just 
it, it doesn't really exist in the U.S. The closest that they people kind of know is our polketa, but the traditional English roast with crackling, they just don't cut the meat the same way, so it's very hard to find that um, in your supermarket. In fact, uh, in certain states, they're not even legally allowed to leave the skin still on a lot of the pork products in the U.S. And so, what's the reasoning behind that? I don't know, and I really need to find out. And <laughs> a little bit of a tangent: one of the largest sub industries, I would say, of pork skin is the medical field and ballistics, because you can like render out the the gelatin to make ballistic jelly. But tattoo artists. Yeah, tattoo artists use it to, to practice. On. Yeah, which I, I'm so happy with, because if I ever get a tattoo, I don't want to be like, oh, some guy's first time. Like, where did he get his practice? If he's been uh, putting some tramp stamps on Babe, I'm okay with that. So that's the way I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to learn. It, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's funny to me. I don't understand why there's this fear of pork skin in the US at a at a regulatory level because you go into any Mexican carniceria which almost invariably have some of the best meat that that you can find in your neighborhood they always have the most amazing chicharrones which is yeah and, and they do it they do the kind of pickled style they do the deep fried they do the roasted and it's all just glorious absolutely glorious so i'm not going to argue that chicharrones aren't aren't ethereal However, the way that they make them, it's much more puffed up, more like a um, uh, a pork like you know puff, and it's it's got a lot of skin on it and a little bit of fat, but not really much in the way of meat. And the way I the reason I love pork uh, crackling in the English style is that it's got that layer of skin, the layer of fat, and a little bit of meat as well. I mean, obviously, when you're making a whole roast yourself, you can decide what you what you want. So I got my butcher to cut me my own and, and basically what we were doing is I was testing out some recipes for later in the month and so I just wanted just a piece of pork that I could do some t- uh, do some testing with and they were able to cut off some of the subcutaneous fat that was just a little too thick reattach the skin butcher twine it all back up so I got this beautiful two and a half pound pork loin that then I can just score and then test out some roasting recipes and so we did that last night and it was phenomenal it just just no that's good just the take taste on the pork uh, because this was a fantastic pork butcher and they are very close to all their um, providers. I think they're all incredibly local. So the pork just tastes like good pork. Um, it's got actual flavor rather than a lot of mass produced pork just tastes like nothing. But the crackling was some of the best crackling and, and not to shoot my own horn, but some of the best crackling I've had not in England. And so very happy with that. And I'm going to be um, trying to make that later on, maybe for New Year's Eve dinner, which we're throwing uh, this year. So that was my best thing that I had. And it happened to be last night. That's weird that we both had this sort of pork connection. <laughs> we both had a, we both <laughs> had a crave, craving for the, uh, the scorched skin of another animal. Yeah. I, you but know, it, the crackling is the best bit. And if, if you guys that are listening ever are in London, there is a joint in Borough Market, one of the stalls that do the most wonderful pork roast bun, the thing that I just described. They're always there whenever Borough Market is open. So I encourage you to go out there. So it's Sunday night for me, lunchtime for you. Mm-hmm. What are you drinking? I am drinking a beer by a company called Sufferfest. And it's a brand local to San Francisco and this is a, a pilsner called Epic that has been crafted to remove gluten. And so it's not a full gluten-free beer, but it's, you know, low gluten. And it's not terrible. It's wow. not, not amazing, but it's not terrible. Why did you why did you pick that? <laughs> uh, because um, I needed to pick up some beer for later today, not to, 
you're going to judge me so hard, but it's my dog's fourth birthday today. And so we're having people over. Uh, and oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so we're having some people over just because there's some other dogs that are friends of ours. And so we're, we're just it's an excuse. You're friends with the dogs. What about the owners? Yeah, they're okay as well. We're, we're basically having some people over as a somewhat quasi Christmas holiday party, but rolling it into, you know, it's Murray's birthday. The dog's uh, birthday. Well, happy birthday, Murray. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, I had to go get some beer and me and the uh, one other person, I think it's, uh, you know, Keith is not the biggest gluten fan as well. And so it's something that is palatable. It's got alcohol in it and it's uh, not going to kill us later. Um, <laughs> what, what are you drinking? I am also drinking a beer, which is reasonably unusual for me. It's a little boutique company from our friends over uh, not too far away called, I don't know how you pronounce it, Gu- Guinness? Okay. Gwyn- Gwynel? It's, uh, it's, yeah, I'm drinking Guinness. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> um, Sorry. I was very confused there. Yeah, it was a poor attempt at a joke. But yes, I'm drinking Guinness because it was in the fridge. And I haven't had one in ages. And they are rather satisfying. So... Yeah, and it's a it's a dark and stormy night over here. It's the whole country shut down because we've had an eighth of an inch of snow. So it just felt like the right thing to drink. And it's uh, <laughs> well, given that it is a dark and stormy night in December, and we are fastly approaching the holiday time of year, as we mentioned in our previous episode, that we thought we would try and squeeze in a. A Christmas episode, a holiday episode, a traditional feast of December episode. Yeah, and uh, it, absolutely, because this is one of my favorite times of the year. Th- we've had Thanksgiving; it's great, but Thanksgiving isn't a universal thing, and neither is Christmas. But there are a lot of other holidays around this time of year, so it just felt like the right thing to do. And we're we are stepping aside from the alphabet just for this episode, so we're not forsaking J. For this episode, we will do J in the next episode because there's too many J foods that deserve yes. some yeah. kind of recognition that I don't want to go exactly. all the way around the horn till we get back to. Exactly. So today is uh, our whatever we're going to call this episode, but it is our our Christmas festival holiday food episode, as is the uh, common thing on the BBC for some reason. They love to kick out the top things to eat. At this time of year, they always trot out some sort of uh, aged uh, celebrity chef to tell us the best way to cook this and that. We're going to shy away from that a little bit and talk a bit more about what it's like around the world. But I think we're going to start off with the fact that where did this main meal came from and what are some of the key components? You know, obviously, we're going to be a little focused on what we've used, been used to here in the, in the US and the UK, but then diving into some more what is standard in other places around the world. So it's actually a fairly new concept to have a single meal on December 24th, 25th. And I'll caveat that. It's new when you take in consideration how long uh, England's been around, but not that new when you take in consideration how long America's been around. Yeah. So um, the the concept of, of uh, Christmas feast has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, going back to medieval times. And what they would do is a 12-day long feast. And maybe that's where we get the 12 days of Christmas and all these other things. Um, it is. But okay then and that's probably that's the thing i was like i was doing research on this and there's so much stuff that is just taken as read in christmas songs poems decorations that are no longer applied to modern christmas but are so 
central to what we think of a partridge in a pear tree, you know, sugar plums, uh, you know, all these things that nobody really could tell you what they are or what the relevance is, but they came from the medieval time through the Victorian time. Um, so back in the medieval times, the main thing that was just like the quintessential, their version of a turkey or a uh, roast beef was a Christmas pie, a three bird roasted in pastry, which later became known as a Yorkshire pie. And back then they used to eat a larger variety of birds. I mean, they had your chickens and, you know, your gooses and your ducks, etc. But then they would also do things like pigeon, which is not that uncommon, but then also peacock, which is a bit weird. Oh, wow. um, and, um, and swan, which isn't there this little urban legend that the only bird anymore. Well, the only person in the world that's allowed to eat the, eat swan is is the queen, and apparently they're not very tasty. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was much more to do with not that they were the best tasting things, but it was more look what we can do with something that is um, so unbelievably pure because of the whiteness and everything. But yeah, really, the, yeah, there's that, a lot of that's a very weird tradition that went that far back. But I do quite like the idea of twelve days of eating. Yeah, I, I, I mean. We kind of get that way these days anyway with holiday parties, with, you know, friends that aren't around, friends that celebrate different religions or or customs that you will have different times to eat. And I think we should bring it back. I think we should have uh, 12 major <laughs> meals. Yeah, just shut the whole country down for 12 days and yeah. everybody just eats. Eats and drinks and no one's allowed to talk about anything that's uh, controversial. Just Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Watch sports, although that's controversial. Drink, eat, and you know have have a good time playing Trivial Pursuit, uh, which is the go. hunter hunter <laughs> tradition. Every yeah, it year. always ends in a fight. So, it's just... <laughs> um, but really, you know the the concept of of the Christmas meal in the UK, sitting down on Christmas Day, uh, really started coming up in the in the 16th, 17th, but mainly the 18th and 19th centuries, where they started really doing it as if it was their job. And it's funny because I always thought about goose and like from British literature, from our own grandmother, it seemed like goose was the most traditional thing in the world for the longest time. And and also in like uh, a Christmas carol, you know, Scrooge at the end provides everyone with a goose. Yes, and, I, and Gary Coleman provides The Simpsons with a goose. Exactly, exactly. And so I always thought it was something like rich and like um, not not necessarily the, the the bird, but like it's what the rich people ate. In fact, it was the complete opposite. Goose is what poor people ate in the Christmas time in Victorian and Edwardian times. And our grandmother had goose all through her childhood. And so it's that was up until the, like the 19... 30s, 40s, and 50s that she was saying that she had, had goose. It was much more common for the richer folks to have either one of these exotic animals, not necessarily peacock uh, um, later on in life, but duck, uh, swan, beef, because it was just giving up such a, an important animal to the the household because it had such a it's a beast of burden, as they say. But the the big thing was goose was for the poor people. But another thing that was also for the poor folks, and it's something that we still have done for the longest time, and I didn't even know to, what it was until I had to have it explained to me, was a capon. Capon is a very large chicken. It's not like your usual broiler chicken or your very old chicken. It's just a, it's a male large chicken, and we used to roast those. I mean, Granny still does that to this day. Yeah, it's interesting because goose and capon – are becoming much more fashionable to have for Christmas. 
Really? Then yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You 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 don't struggle to find either of those in the store. That's some people do both. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Goose, but you you can't find it for love nor money uh, in the U.S. unless you special order it. But to the point about Goose being sort of this working man's thing, uh, during the Victorian era, there were Goose clubs that were set up, which allowed working class families to save up and put towards their Goose. So it's sort of like layaway for Christmas. And that's the level of, of A, importance around this singular meal that people would you know save up for this one dish, but also that it was sort of seen as the second class meat and towards the Victorian and Edwardian times, people of a, a richer disposition, disposition did move towards towards beef. Uh, there's one other thing on Capon. I think this is it's it's a slightly legal and moral gray area, weirdly, because the capons are are chemically castrated. For, I think for a while it was considered mutilation, and therefore it was outlawed. But I, they are available in the UK, and you can get them, but. You don't have their. You don't chemically castrate them anymore, and I think it's because because that's not it's, cool. It's not cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but they are capons. You can get. It's just a cockerel. It's a domestic domestic cockerel that you can eat. And you know, I don't know. I think we. I think we. We look to the past, and we'll talk about this a little bit a little bit later, and go. Oh, that's what they did. We should do that. And then, you know, you grimace as you eat it and go, "Mmm, old timey. Yeah. This is traditional." And you're like, "What? The, well, we shouldn't have to do that." Yeah. But yeah. So you can still get but that. the the one the one bird the one animal that I hadn't mentioned yet, uh, which is so synonymous with with Christmas, is the turkey. And although it does have quite a long history in the UK, about five hundred years, uh, Henry VIII was the first English king to enjoy turkey, um, and then Edward the Seventh made eating turkey fashionable at Christmas. We did look to our royals to inspire what was going to be on the plates at Christmas. It's Still an interesting thing because it's so quintessentially English these days. 87% of, of British people expect turkey on Christmas Day. The real interesting fact is it came from America. Because there's so many things that are associated with, with Christmas di- uh, dinner in England that just couldn't have existed in England until the uh, Columbian Exchange, the, the, the back and forth of goods between the New World and the Old. So let's look at turkey specifically. We all know what it is. It's a large bird that everyone has either Thanksgiving in the U.S. and so is not as popular uh, for the, in the U.S. for Christmas, but it is the bird of choice or the meat of choice in the U.K. It was first introduced to England in 1527 by a Yorkshireman seems to be a running theme of Yorkshiremen and Christmas, called uh, William Strickland, who brought six birds back from America and then started uh, breeding them and selling them for a tuppence. So that has been something that has become so entwined with English heritage, but required the pilgrims, basically, or I mean, that was, this is before the pilgrims, to bring it over and make it fashionable. And and the, we'll get onto it as well, but potatoes being so quartered to roast dinners as well, they came from the Andes. So these are interesting things that couldn't have existed prior to amalgams of different cultures. And that's what I really took away from, from all the research we did here, is that our culture and other people's cultures are just this melting pot of different aspects taken from either colonial times or more modern times where we've cherry picked some of the stuff that just worked really well. So jumping down to the next well, here, one. Hang on. So- I, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing well, that I was thinking ahead. about that, that has actually kept me up a little bit at night while we've been planning this episode is I don't know if I have a true idea of what a traditional quote unquote 
Christmas meal looks like to me. Like I'm, I'm pretty laid back about what's on the table. I'm not, I'm not militant that you must have this and you must have that. But I know a lot of people are. So, what do you need to have on the table for it to be Christmas? Or what, what, what can't be missing? I'm one of these people that I'm going to go with the flow, but I understand that there are things that are, for me, that are um, more important for tradition. It's not even an edible thing that is absolutely core for me for a Christmas, e- a Christmas meal, and that is Christmas crackers. And to the point where I drove around um, Massachusetts one year looking for them. I think it was one of the first years that I, I didn't spend Christmas in England. I spent it with my my future in-laws in, in Boston. And trying to find Christmas crackers at that time was still pretty hard. And it was just something that for me, I don't really care what's on the, on the, on the table uh, as long as there's a lot of people around the table, a lot of wine, something roasted, and Christmas crackers. That is all I need to feel like it's home. Yeah, Everything I th- else. I think I'm about that. I think I'm the same way. Like, I'm, I'm even not indifferent. It's not the word, right word. There's, I don't think there's any food in the world I'm indifferent about. But I think the meat, I'm I'm okay with it really being anything. I think, but as you say, roasted, I think, is probably pretty critical to that. Mm-hmm. But I have to say there is one thing that I would be kind of sad if they weren't available to me throughout the season. And that is the next thing on your list of, of <laughs> historical components. And that is mince pies. Yeah. And I this is bloody love <laughs> mince pies. And they go on sale here. And so I should preface this next bit by saying this. I love Christmas. Christmas is amazing. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. That's you know my favorite holiday, but I am not one of those people that will ejaculate tinsel all over my house right after Labor Day. You know, <laughs> I, I have a little bit more restraint than that. That, that nothing Christmassy goes up on our house until the first of December because I'm a grown up. <laughs> However, yeah, and you have Thanksgiving to get through as well. They yeah, that doesn't seem to stop most people. They have mince pies on sale in England in September, and I'm. Totally okay with that. <laughs> well, it's one of those things that, like, you know, mince pies, they should be on sale all year round. Let's just not mess around with this. Mm. Why not have them on sale all year round? And if people, I'd be want dead them, if that was the case. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and to my earlier point about how Christmas has become this, uh, or Christmas meals have become this melting pot of different cultures. Mince pies are the first and probably best example of this. They, they originated in the 13th century uh, and they were basically created by crusaders coming back from the Middle East with spices and, and exotic fruits that just weren't ex- available uh, back in, in Britain. And they were able to make these pies. They were originally made with minced meat, suet, and a range of fruit spices such as cinnamon, clove, nutmeg, that just those were not standards in England. And so most of my American friends or, or friends that aren't familiar with English customs, they get a little freaked out by mince pies because they hear or they've heard that it's minced meat. And like, why would that be in a, in a, in a thing? It's just a holdover name. They do still use suet. They still do use beef suet in the pastry, but a lot of like modern pastries that you'd have for pies do still have beef, beef suet in it. And that's just the yeah, shortening and, and all of that. I mean, good. You need that to have the flakiness. Exactly. So are you a straight up clotted cream kind of person or are you a brandy oh, butter? What, ridiculous. Do, what do you need? Ice cream. Ice cream. I need a mince pie whose interior temperature is greater than that of our sun. <laughs> 
And then I need some very good ice cream on top. I think brandy butter is nonsense. It's like eating um, alcoholic Vaseline. Well, yeah, I, we, we, uh, we were over in England last Christmas, and I think someone had bought, I think it was Fortnum and Mason brandy butter. That was me. That was me. It was given to me, and I was able to pawn it off on our family. And, it, and, and I think alcoholic Vaseline is a good analogy it was disgusting and i like that's one of those things that's one of those things where i'm convinced where we've gone oh we we endure it because it's tradition like christmas pudding uh it's like uh what's it called um fruitcake yeah uh we should talk about that in a second i'm i'm not as horrified by christmas pudding as i am by by brandy butter butter i i just yeah i'm just i'm just not a fan mince pies are wonderful and i have the same reticence that a lot of people unfamiliar to mince pies are that you you just can't shake the thing that it's going to be like ground beef <laughs> in a and that, like why would i have that with ice cream and also i uh, in in terms of their their form form factor if you will in america they tend to be you know the same format as an apple pie or a pecan pie you know 10 inches which is actually here. historically more accurate i was doing some research on this and until oh. recently until like the last I say recent again. I'm using British now uh, 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 timelines on this. Until about 200 years ago, they were usually about the size of like a giant sausage roll, and they were like oblongs. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so they were. They were like almost like I don't know another analogy, but like yeah, a giant sausage roll, and um, you'd cut parts off of it rather than having one individual. So not saying that the American style pie is more accurate, but the concept of a larger thing and so maybe we should bring that yeah. back <laughs> no it's good that they're in individually pre-portioned serving sizes because i can get one and then that's it like but if you give me the whole pie to portion myself yeah. bad things will happen <laughs> that's hilarious um so the next thing i want to talk about and this one might be a little contentious because this is the most for us we do this but it is the most british thing that is probably um, an amuse-bouche to the main event, but I have not found at all in, outside of, of England unless they are either Scandinavian or just trying something else new and there's no tradition around it. The, the, the Christmas breakfast, and the Christmas breakfast in our house is smoked salmon and champagne. And that yeah, is that, the most British thing in the world, and I love it. I think I think if you went anywhere in Western, well, France, I would say that would they would probably do something similar. I think it's a it's a good tradition, and it's light, and you're about to have like so much roasted yeah, food, and like it's a snacky yeah. food, and it's, it's something you can you can graze on. But you and I are, are clearly not the people that will get really upset, and Christmas will be ruined if we don't have particular ingredients. Mince pies are a given. That's just not negotiable. <laughs> But I like the – so we went on Twitter and we asked people that question, like what can you not miss? Like what, what cannot be absent from your Christmas table? And I was really surprised. And these are mainly people in the US and the UK that replied. And we'll, we'll, we can, we'll dive into the rest of the world in a minute. But I was surprised by this. I was surprised by the variety, which I think actually in a way validates everybody else's position of it is what you make it and what the traditions are in your own four walls. Two things surprised me the most. The one is the prevalence of Yorkshire puddings. Yes. I mean, I love Yorkshire puddings. I think they're wonderful things. Uh, they are very difficult to cook well. And once you've perfected it, you sort of protect that technique with your life. But Nick Wilkinson, I don't know if you've met him, a nice chap. <laughs> uh, everybody replied to the same question, which was what 
you know, what, what do you always need to have? And he said, multiple Yorkshire puddings drowning in gravy. It may not strictly be traditional, but it is compulsory. And weirdly, Sir Greg Barnes also has Yorkshire puddings. And that was the first thing that he said. He calls them Yorkships. Yorkships. That's a bit which weird. just makes me a little bit uncomfortable, well, frankly. His, his family is from Blackpool. Isn't that, isn't that up there somewhere? Yeah. I don't know if it's Yorkshire, yeah, but, but it's up, up, up north somewhere. I don't know why they're called that. It's weird in that he has some explaining to do. But here's the thing. They both eat them with turkey. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, like I said, 80s odd percent of people in the UK are expecting turkey this year. Yeah, um, but done as a Yorkshire poll by puddings the BBC. are traditionally a beef, beef thing. accompaniment. Yeah, because yeah, they're made with beef fat, usually. I understand why people um, want them with any kind of roast meat because they're so good at what they do. But it is tradition, most traditional with beef. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love Yorkshire pudding. I think it's a great idea. But I think that you might kill old ladies if you told them that you had Yorkshire puddings with turkey. Yeah. Posh old ladies or even posh young ladies. But anyway, yeah, I was surprised. And and Nick and Greg were not the only people to, to come back with that. The other one that surprised me was the the absolute necessity in the UK for pigs and blankets. Yeah, I saw multiple people reply with that. Are they called pigs and blanket in in America? I, I don't know. I think now here's a, this is a really interesting question. Pigs in a blanket in the context that we're talking about are sausages wrapped in bacon, almost almost invariably either cocktail sausages or chipolatas. Mm-hmm. I think though in the U.S. and please American friends correct us if we're wrong, a pig in a blanket is a sausage roll. Yes, or variation thereof. It, it's a sausage wrapped in like Stouffer's. Biscuit and all those triangle yeah, like a, things, like Homer's like puff pastry. Yeah, and then yeah. you roll them and you throw them in the in the oven, and they're usually a snacky thing than actually on the side of the dish. And I didn't even think about this until now because I'm I'm on the British side on this one. I'm just imagining sausages wrapped in bacon, and you know, there's nothing better than meat wrapped in meat. So that is that's funny. I, I didn't even think about that, and something that unless I'm back in England, I don't get at Christmas. And I just had a little peek, and it says, yeah, in the U.S., pigs in a blanket refers to hot dogs and croissant rolls or croissant rolls, you know, the ones you get out of a tin. Out of a tin. Mm-hmm. Both are glorious, but in this context, we're talking about the one where it's wrapped in, in bacon. I was surprised how many people came back and said, or that was one of the most consistently top answers was, mm-hmm. was that. The other one, uh, so I love this one, anything as long as it can be served cold in a sandwich in the evening. Yes, and that was, that was Matthew CT at Matt5678, a great Twitter name. That is so key. If you're not thinking about the fact that you're going to have leftovers and how it's going to be used, you're not doing Christmas right. Yeah, I think that, that goes the same for Thanksgiving. So if you, you know, the, the general rule of thumb for when you're ordering your turkey is a pound of weight per person. So if you've got 10 people coming, you need to eat, order at least a 12 pound bird. Otherwise, you're not going to have enough leftovers for your sandwiches. Yeah, and, and then we'll we'll get on to that in a second about some – there's a very, very famous thing that English people do besides sandwiches uh, with their leftovers. But we'll get into that when we talk a bit more about variations around the world. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Stuffing was the other one. I think stuffing is important, and I think it's also one of the things that people demand on their tables. But the ingredients or components of the stuffing seems to – that people demand – well, Craig McCormick at Glen Affric Craig said homemade stuffing. I don't think a lot of people make the stuffing here. It's that's tough. Yeah. And and I make it. And there's a the word stuffing has become synonymous with cooking it inside the bird, which 
you should never, ever, ever, ever do because you will get sick. And our grandmother will say, I've been doing it for 50 years and never gotten sick, but that's because granny is made of asbestos. But, you know, she, you should never cook your stuffing inside the bird just because the chances for that to get heated through and kill the bacteria is not smart. Somebody else replied, high quality stuffing. And I, I, okay, I asked what that meant. And they said, good quality sausage meat and streaky bacon and chestnuts. And that Jamie Oliver's uh, recipe was was on point. I I also I find it interesting that British stuffing does not have nearly as much bread or that bit of it mm-hmm. than American stuffing. I don't necessarily know if either one is right, but but those seem to be the things that the that the social media public demand to have on their tables in the U.S. and the U.K. Well, I just want to make sure that we touch upon uh, another one that's a contentious issue is that of Brussels sprouts and where they land on your on your thing. And I think that Brussels sprouts have been a, a an ingredient that has been done poorly for most of its entire existence on our plate. And most people now don't like it. But there's been this resurgence in how to cook it in, in the Bay Area, at least. Fried Brussels sprouts are freaking phenomenal. Uh, and we got a reply from from uh, Will Harris at Will Harris. Who oh, said, Will's a legend. Yeah. Shredded sautéed sprouts with hazelnut and pancetta, and that sounds on point. And it sounds kind of a bit like what one of the dishes that you do, uh, except there's uh, a staggering amount of cream and cheese in mine. That's that's another Kenji Lopezat recipe. His his over the top Brussels sprouts. Google it. It's utterly transcendent. But yeah, that Will's reply, Will Harris's reply, garnered a lot of other replies saying, "Oh, I'm adding that to the list." So. I don't know. Will's a very, very good cook, and he's a foodie as well, so I'm sure it's it's excellent. But yeah, uh, if you don't like Brussels sprouts, then they haven't been prepared for you properly. So give them exactly. The I do want to just uh, finish on this little bit of section here with our brother Andrew Hunter. When I said, um, "Is are, are you a turkey or a beef house?" and Andrew said, uh, "You know, without a doubt, we are a turkey house. We all remember Christmas 2010, or he called it 2010 Gate." <laughs> The fact that this is still a problem after almost a decade shows that this is going to go down in history. In my defense, to bring my legal counsel forward, the chef can only do what he can do with the ingredients he's given. And one year I was charged with cooking, and I've mentioned this before, cooking uh, the Christmas uh, roast. And it was a very poorly put together uh, roast that was not the highest quality, I would say. And it came out a little underdone. And as we mentioned before, my grandmother then and there wrote me out of the will because she was very upset with it. Uh, so I, I we've been think, a turkey house ever since. I think also uh, beef is tough because people like it in so many different ways and it's impossible to please everybody. So yeah, I just avoid it for the exact same reasons. Yeah, Granny Granny would rather, um, you know, a piece of shoe leather than a medium rare steak because um, it's still bleeding in her terms. But this is why we've been a turkey house. And you've been doing barbecue turkey uh, as an homage to your father-in-law um, for the last, what? Six, seven years? Yeah, at least. That's the only way to do it for me because I don't have any oven space otherwise. Yeah, it's a great way. And that's that's an interesting one. Like, love to hear from you guys. Certain dishes are just not doable because you don't have the timing or the space to make it happen. We have been blessed with being able to have neighbors who might not necessarily be using all their ovens or just not be in town. So there has been years where we've been running across the little lanes in our town with roasted vegetables and and roasted potatoes between um, 
one house and then the other. And then Alex up at the garage, which is about, you know, a hundred feet, almost a hundred yards actually away from the main house, uh, in a cold, rainy Christmas day, barbecuing a Turkey. Uh, it all comes together. Uh, it's not exactly. a garage. It's it's a summer kitchen, you uncouth pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Is that <laughs> what it's going to be cut listed as if that house is ever sold? <laughs> Absolutely. I think I think we should take a trip around the world. And you know, we've covered the British stuff. We covered the American stuff to an extent, but we will get another episode out for, before Christmas. So if you're screaming at your speakers because we've missed something or we've got something wrong that is important to you, let us know. But I got a real kick out of going around the world. And many of you people were very generous with your input about what you eat at Christmas, where you're from, uh, or the traditions that you brought with you from your homeland to to wherever you are now. And that, that could be holiday traditions as well. I, well, I don't want to do this in alphabetical order. I want to start with, with uh, Paul again, who's from Switzerland. And their traditional dish that he has is cardoon gratin. He said it's very Genevan, and we'll get to what that is in a second. He said, that specific thorny cardoon variety is only cultivated near Geneva and even has a protected designation. You get it blanched, it's sold in jars, and then they have stuffed turkey with roasted chestnuts and chestnut puree. I had no idea what a cardoon was. Absolutely no, no idea. I looked it up, and I found this description, which I loved. Cardoons are a fantasy dragon of a vegetable, which celery would look like if it went through the looking glass and ended up in Game of Thrones. It's basically this huge, gigantic celery. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you, you like Paul says, you you blanch it and you put it in this. I mean, anything in a gratin is going to be amazing because it's just cheese and breadcrumbs. So I'm guessing it's used, you know, it's both an herb and a vegetable and you roast it and it goes milder and like you put cheese on it and then everything's awesome. Yeah, because it's basically you have like a big old cup of groyeur and then like cream a bunch of cream, salt and pepper, and chicken stock, and all that, and yeah, it, it softens it up, and you get the lovely herby flavor. I'll have to try. It. I mean, so this year we're staying local, and so on Christmas Day, I think it's just going to be me and my wife. So we'll try and see if there's anything around the world that we're not going to upset, poison, or ruin anyone's day by trying to do. <laughs> so it might be actually be a great Christmas to try some of these things out. So keep suggestions coming in. I'm going to yeah. work through some more of these. Yeah, there's but, some uh, good ones here. So you found a, uh, the the one in Italy. Yeah, and so this one's an like interesting one. This. this one is so contentious because like all my Italian-American friends are like, oh yeah, we, have, we do it on Christmas Eve. That's a big distinction. A lot of People do Christmas Eve over Christmas Day. Germany is a big one as well. Italy, they're like, oh, yeah, we had the Feast of Seven Fishes. And doing my research on this, that's not Italian. <laughs> like, basically, it's uh... Italian-American. Like, they took advantage of what they had around them. There is a, a what's the word, a mother meal called, and I, I tried to get a pronunciation on this, La Vigilia, uh, which means the vigil, meaning the vigil of the birth of the Jesus Christ. And it was a fish-based feast that they had uh, on Christmas Eve. But the actual designation of the Feast of Seven Fishes was an American-Italian invention inspired by Southern Italy. And it can really va- range on what they have, but often you'll find lobster, bacalao, so salted codfish. No, that sounds good. Yeah, herring, you know, crab, uh, you know, anything that it goes through the water and you have seven of them. And uh, in 
in previous years, uh, my wife Kate in in Boston when I've been over there, we've done a bit of a seafood Christmas Eve. We've done uh, Alaskan king crab, which is a lot of fun, and and seafood seems to be the biggest challenger around the world to everything that we've just mentioned with your turkeys and, and your beef. Um, yeah. And I love it. And we'll get into it a little bit more. But so Italians come at me. Tell me if you're if I'm missing something. It seems like northern Italians are going to have a very different type of food than southern or, or coastal Italians. And obviously, a lot of this stuff happens when you move to a new country. Italian-Americans yeah. can tell me what their normal Christmas day is like. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by that. We should do an episode on the food of the diaspora. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's a good way to put it. Winters. I, I, you know, Turkey is a, is a, is not just a UK and uh, and US thing. In Spain, they have it with truffles. Uh, it has a little bit of, of pork in it as well. But it was interesting what you mentioned about fish. And uh, Mariam Hassani, who's uh, at Yogurt Soda on Twitter, replied saying that she's from the Bay Area, so naturally Dungeness crab. There's an area of turkey or beef around these parts, and I thought that was really interesting because I consider myself uh, from the Bay Area and. This was news to me. And that's really surprising because uh, Dungeness Crab is in season right now. It goes through, I, I don't know when actually when it ends, but it starts uh, in the Bay Area in mid to late fall, depending on what the government says is okay as far as the uh, the amounts in the water. But um, I see it on all my restaurants around me, uh, menus, but I don't see a lot of people doing it at home. So maybe it's something for the more adventurous chef that we're just not taking advantage of. And I love Dungeness crap. I, but it's yeah, just not I do something too. that I do. I think I would be sad if uh, if I didn't have something roasted. I mean, I love I love crab. I love San Francisco Dungeness crab. But I think if I didn't have something roasted, but that was interesting to me. I, I so I like uh, this other one as well. Uh, and you mentioned this about about Scandinavia. So. L.A. Flyer, who is a, a layovers listener and a very uh, nice guy, and I didn't know this is obviously of Scandinavian uh, origin or is Scandinavian, said that for a meat, ham nearly always has center stage. And the ham that they do in Sweden, I guess, is is boiled and then glazed with eggs, breadcrumb, and mustard, which which is almost like mm. how you would have a gammon, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that sounds that sounds amazing to me. Yeah, and so I, I mentioned like you know for for me, ham is such a, a Easter meal, and um, he said that it's eaten as part of a traditional Scandinavian holiday feast, hence why we have it. Uh, you could add things like gravlax, which is uh, smoked salmon or a salmon variation, uh, and herring, along with various cold salad dishes to go along with it to make the full experience. And so. Uh, I have a question. Scandinavia in winter is colder than a well digger's bottom. It's got to be something you craving for, like hot, warm roast meats. And I know the hand's probably doing that for you, but I wouldn't want anything cold on my dish if it's negative a billion outside yeah, and but there's suppose, reindeer outside. I suppose... You know, if that's if that's the environment that you're from, then you've been conditioned to it. But yeah, no, I get they are I mean. Vikings and they can't handle whatever yeah. in the world. So, yeah, I, I, I get that. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting one and how the British specifically have taken the smoked salmon from the Scandinavians as being so core to it, but left the ham or left the other aspects of it. And so it's interesting how we've picked and choose different aspects of other people's uh christmases or just yeah I like, it. I like it i think it's one of those things that we all that we all share 
which is lovely. There's two more I want to talk about before we before we wrap up. The first, which everybody you know has perhaps heard whispers of, but I can assure you it's 100% true. What do they eat in Japan for Christmas, Will? They eat KFC. And what I thought when I first read this was it was Korean fried chicken, so it was just like fried chicken that like you know for some reason that became a thing but no it is the good colonel himself yep they eat kfc uh, i mean obviously like one to two percent of japanese people are christians so they so they there's not a lot of people who would celebrate christmas in the in the traditional sense of the word however in the early 70s there was a and this is it has a kind of like a big mac invention story to it where there was somebody low down in the food chain huh, at kfc in japan who kept running into Americans who were looking for turkey to go with their Christmas meals and mm-hmm. didn't, couldn't, couldn't find it. So he's like, I have an idea. Let's make let's make KFC a Christmas thing here. And they did. So in 1974, they launched the KFC Christmas chicken campaign. And because the Americans would just end up at KFC with a bargain bucket in replace of a turkey because they couldn't find anything else. And now it's so popular that you have to order your KFC for Christmas in Japan weeks and weeks ahead of the big day because it is so popular and it's such a a component of japanese life now that uh, one of the big airlines jal actually serve kfc in flight during the christmas period i've yet to experience this but i can just i can tell you that all over japan even as early as last month the posters for kfc christmas were all over. I just, I just love it. I think that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and this was uh, ratified or, or confirmed by uh, Twitter user um, ORD to anywhere saying, "Being half cha- Japanese, KFC fried chicken." No, seriously, if you aren't familiar with this Japanese Christmas meal phenomenon, uh, and then he also mentioned how how Jal also does uh, does this during the. Uh, the holiday period, and and I I was looking at the stats here that that you mentioned that three point six million Japanese families eat KFC during the holiday period. Insane, and I don't know, maybe we it's something that we could catch on here. Uh, we should, yeah. Well, I, I kind of like that idea. I was reading that, that there's not only just KFC, but they sell. Uh, I'm not sure if I misread this or if it's a deal only during the holiday period. But there's KFC champagne or KFC sparkling wine that you can get yeah, as part they, of they your this, bargain. Yep, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm in. I'm a hundred percent in. In fact, next Christmas I'm going to Japan. I just decided <laughs> I'll tell my wife after. Yeah, so that, that that one was an interesting one. Yeah, I like that one. But l- this last one is probably the the most heartwarming to me. It makes me smile the most, and that's Jewish people in America obviously don't, or Jewish people around the world obviously don't celebrate Christmas. But in the late 20th century, the Jewish and Chinese communities were the were the biggest diaspora groups in the US and neither of them were particularly interested in Christmas. And so you would have uh, families kind of going, what are we going to do? All the stores are closed, but the Chinese places are were the only places that were open. So you have, you know, you, you find yourself wandering into Chinatown in New York where this tradition started on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day because the stores were, the restaurants were opened. And now there's this wonderful relationship between Chinese food and the Jewish community in the U.S. that is, is I just love it. I think it's this beautiful coming together of, of two 
diaspora communities in the melting pot that is the U.S. to form this this modern tradition. Of, yeah, <laughs> modern as much Christmas as the KFC one is weird, this one is yeah, probably going on longer and just it, it fills a supply and a demand. Like if, if yeah. we get a day off for something that you don't believe in, then that can be difficult to make sure that you you know are able to celebrate whatever you want to celebrate. And therefore the Chinese were like, all right, cool. It's great. I think it's great. It's, you know, it's, it's two, two expat groups coming together and bonding over a day, which is completely inconsequential to them. Yeah. And it's, it's become part of the American holiday fabric. I think it's wonderful. And it is immortalized in one of the greatest scenes in the greatest controversial Christmas movie of all time that is an absolute must in our house. We Christmas Eve cannot come to an end until we have watched A Christmas Story. So, all right, Christmas movies. We're going to have to talk about this a little bit. So currently in my office or the head office is doing a bracket. So Americans are obsessed with sports brackets, you know, basically a playoff system. And they've taken like maybe 32 Christmas movies and and seeded them based on their Rotten Tomato scores. So you have something like 95% versus like 13%. And it's to find out what is the most quintessential Christmas movie. There's a lot of concern on my side and so i'm already writing my uh my my my, my hr letter if, if die hard does not win the best christmas movie of all time i'm gonna go i'm gonna go ham on somebody because uh there were some there's some interesting ones but uh, you know, again we'd love to hear what your favorite christmas movies are i, I don't i'll i'll challenge you on the die hard thing die hard is a christmas movie but it's not even in the top 10 Oh, see, I only watched and and I only got this because I married into an American family, even though I sound American, we're not really. I a didn't know what Christmas story was. And B, I didn't know that the, the USA network played it 24 hours a day leading up to Christmas. And so if you miss it, you can watch it again. And it's either Fox or NBC are doing a live version of it. In a couple, in, a, in like a week or so, where um, nice. uh, what's his face? Um, Ferris Bueller is playing um, the dad, and it's got a bunch of really famous people in it as well. And it's a live version nice. of it, so that'll be interesting. But it's a bit, it's it's a bit weird for me. It's not, I don't know, it's not that Christmassy. There are more Christmas mo- Christmassy movies for me, including it literally has the name Christmas in the title. So does Christmas Carol, and that's much better. But like. Christmas Carol was a book. I know, but uh, but it was also a... Uh, well, adapt- actually, Christmas Story was based on a book. It was called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, but it's... The Muppets it's, Christmas Carol is in the top five. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, It's a Wonderful Life has got to be top three. I apologize, listeners, that we're getting so off food, but obviously you can tell this no, is a contentious No, no, because you, you, know, you, fit, you have your meal, you can't move, yep. and so you just slump on the sofa and you watch movies you know and there's there's christmas story there's you know there 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 are christmas movies that are as much a part of people's christmas traditions as some of the food so i think they go they go hand in hand I, I, and I, don't get me wrong again i love die hard <laughs> but there are better christmas movies i i i will agree to disagree and i think that quite nicely rounds us out to uh the one thing that i want to say which is the most english of traditions and uh perfectly sums up different cultures and how we use leftovers and so the english boxing day tradition for a lot of households is taking that leftover turkey and making a curry and i can't think of anything that is that sums up the whole coming together you know making a meal and then having this leftovers and then then a 
such a British Indian thing the next day um, uh, as a turkey curry. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, that's something I do. It's rare that I have leftovers, but I always make sure that I've saved some for a sandwich and some for a curry. And it's 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 a great thing. And you're right. It's a lovely representation of, of cultures coming together. And I think that's what this time of year is all about. Yes. So <laughs> we uh, we got this episode up and hopefully, as we mentioned, and, and thank you for putting that that fake technical issues in our last episode. <laughs> I didn't know that was coming. So I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's happening again um, in our ice cream episode. So hopefully, touch wood, we don't have any issues with getting this up um, ASAP. But in the meantime, you know, once this is out, feel free. What did we miss? What uh, is Christmas like at your house? Is there anything? And I think we've kind of established that Christmas traditions uh, and holiday traditions are as much as what there's there's no unifying thing in this world of there's no rules yeah in this yeah. world of like some homogenized branding and and uh, sort of you know every chain is around the world it still feels good that Christmas can be so identified or Christmas meals can be so identified as what you're used to and your individual approach to it so let us know we'll try and get another episode out before the end of the year a J episode where we'll, where we will be able to um, chat in depth about anything that we have missed so let us know other than that do you have any last minute things that you want to get in before the end of the year uh i'm going to milan tomorrow so i will pick up some uh panettone i think yes. just because it's there and i want to have it but other than that no i'm just looking forward to all of the things that we talked about <laughs> at christmas story i know i'm like oh and, i need to go have lunch now because i'm and mold wine yeah and lots of mold wine i can dig that but until uh, we get back to Jay, let us know what you think. And until next time, Will. Eat well. 